Every week we do a Q&A with interesting and accomplished members of the adaptive community to find how they persevered, how they innovated, how they built communities, and how they found solutions. Welcome to the Name Tags Chat Podcast. Welcome to the Name Tags Chat Podcast. Today we have Dan Berlin, who is an enterprising entrepreneur, an investor, a philanthropist, and an endurance athlete who happens to be blind. So some of these things, Dan, we need to get into it because that that does you some justice, but there are a lot of other parts of it, right? So a world-leading vanilla extract company that you sold to Archer Daniels Midland Company, uh, what you've run from from uh, from Mo- Mocha, run the Mocha Picchu Trail? Is this what is this what it is? The the uh, what is it? Run ran across the Grand Canyon and back, then 26 miles on Peru's Inca Trail to Mocha Picchu, and then you did Kilimanjaro in two and a half days, which I'm a little bit upset about because the last day took me two and a half days. <laughs> well, I mean, it's a, it's quite a incredible feat um what what you've done so uh you know it's it's really cool great to be here i really happy welcome to be here with you uh, thanks very awesome. much i mean it's really interesting to look at what you're doing so some of it is i mean you fit in as a businessman you fit in as an entrepreneur you fit in as an investor uh as as someone who pushes the limit on what you can do endurance wise do all of these things come together for you in some ways is it all the same thing or are they disparate uh different things that you do yeah it's an interesting question that's a great way to look at it all of these things come together as a whole but it's i'll be honest not a um initially planned out path it's kind of like looking back and connecting the dots. I like the, the Steve Jobs commencement speech. It's, I think the common thread for me is really this, um, you know, desire to push the limits to see where those limits are, what are perceived limits and what, what, what my actual limits are. And I think they're surprisingly different and, um, just constantly doing that, whether it's a business, whether it's, um, you know, trying something athletically, endurance sport wise, whether it's, um, you know, taking on something, just a creative challenge. It's um, always interesting to see what I think I can do and then to push it and see where I actually end up. Was that always the case for you as a kid? I mean, you started losing your sight when you were seven, right? And then lost it in your 20s or, or diagnosed when you were seven. Is that the precipitating event, the losing your sight that is pushing the limitations? Were you always somebody who pushed limitations or did you come into it, you know, as a result of the the blindness or, or separate from the blindness in some ways as you grow older too? Well, if you'd ask my mom, she'd probably tell you I always push my limits. But, <laughs> okay. <you> know, <laughs> the, the, the reality is no. Um, you know, I was diagnosed when I was seven and, you know, I was in a, a very small town in central Pennsylvania and yeah, I just wanted to fit in. You know, I, I just, you know, I ended up, I think, and, and this, this revelation came, you know, decades later, looking back is that at the time I just wanted to fit in. So I wanted to play sports. I wanted to do these things and I was losing my eyesight 
So in order to do that, I, I, I was honestly, I was quite afraid to tell anybody I was losing my eyesight too. You know, a couple of people knew, my parents knew, I really didn't make much of it in school and um, I adapted. So I think part of this pushing the limits was a process of adapting to playing sports like um, you know football or or wrestling or track and field, you know along the way as I could see less and less. I, I think it was I think it was um, I think it was nurture. I learned to adapt, and in learning to adapt, I, I started to, to bump up against what those limits were, and that's where I really started to find that you know life is really fun. It's it's really exciting and really fun to live at that point when we're starting to push up against stuff that's um, you know what others expect of us or what we expect of ourselves. And um, so I think it was really an adaption to losing my sight slowly over years. So you were having to confront that on a daily basis with diminishing eyesight, and and I'd imagine there were times along the way. When as much as you wanted to hide that you were losing your eyesight, it probably didn't work out all that well. You're talking about like running track and playing football, things where where, where things can go horribly wrong, right? Where you might run off the track, run directly into a fence or something like that at full speed or, you know, something. Did you ever have any of those kinds of things that you went, I thought I was hiding it well, and apparently I'm not hiding it well, and this really hurt a lot. Uh, definitely. I mean, definitely in the working, in, the, in my professional career, when I started to get into um, a more corporate roles, um, that became very apparent when somebody you know, hands me an Excel sheet, and um, you just can't read it. You know, and maybe I didn't disclose anything. I, I wasn't using a cane very often back then, if it ever things like that. Um, yeah, in sports, like for football, for instance, I just slowly moved to positions where I could tell what was going on and be decently good at it without necessarily having to keep my eye on the ball. So I moved like from, from further out and further back up to the line and ended up being a defensive end. And, you know, in high school at that point, you know, it was really like, okay, I, I know what I have to do. And um, a lot of times it was you know, hoping it worked, but it, I guess I was decent enough without probably ever seeing the ball my last year or two of, of playing. You know, so it's ad it's an adaptation that um, we come about. Uh, what I've adjusted to and learned over the years is my reason for adapting has changed. Back then, my reason was very fear-based. It was just, I didn't want to be different. You know, I didn't want to stand out. And, um, you know, moving into work, it was the same thing. I think it created a work ethic. I mean, maybe it was nature, maybe not, but I just always had the attitude that I just need to work at this harder. You know, if I, if I don't want to be uh, slower than my peers at, at doing something, you know, I, I just need to work harder. And um, I think there's good and bad that's come out of that. Um, I have a bit of a different attitude these days, but, you know, when, when we're young, you know, that's sometimes, you know, the way we attack problems is just to fit in well some of it is developing those strategies right so so the thing is that you, we often hear about people who have had you know difficult times certainly people who have had some learning disabilities you hear about people with dyslexia who are who are often ending up as ceos and things like that too because they've had to find ways to learn the process better what kind of what kind of strategies did you employ and how does how does the building of that strategy continue to inform who you are 
now or what you're trying to do? Yeah, it's 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 not easy. And every one of us is an individual. Um, I think a lot of what I learned by originally trying to fit in and then that slow evolution into understanding this is just who I am. And, you know, I may be blind, but blindness isn't necessarily me. It's just something that um, I'm in this world as a blind person, but that doesn't change the fact that I'm in this world and really have all these different um, pursuits or, or ways I can, uh, I can go about doing things that, that I find really you know, impactful you know, with my life. So I always come back to that sense of you know, what, what's, what impact can I have? What, what can I do? Um, what experiences are out there you know, to partake in? And with that, the strategy really evolves into one of, you know, the best way to put this is, um, you know, uh, constantly adapting. It, it's, it's always about being creative. Um, when we get out on the trail, for instance, on, on some of these runs, you know, we may research it a lot. But as you probably know, you know, definitely when you get out there, you know, things are different than what we thought. And, you know, the options are, well, I'm going to stop here or we're going to adapt and change and maybe use a different guiding technique or, you know, approach the problem from a different angle. And I think a lot of that was learned, you know, I think the drive was always there, but the strategy that turned into the actual tactics that we use, those are learned um, very much as we go. Uh, one of those things is a, a strong emphasis on preparation, mm -hmm. you know, where, where I, where I never really used to prepare much when I was, you know, very young, you know, and then on through high school, I would kind of wing it a lot. And college was a bit more, okay, I can't see the boards and back then the overheads. So aiding myself a little bit there, but, but you prepare, you know, um, I, maybe, maybe it's a work on listening really well, uh, try to attend every lecture and listen, um, you know, make sure I have friends and network that might have notes that we can talk about what was up on the board later, um, things like that. So it's this, this emphasis that, that moved towards preparation. And then that preparation really allows one to be able to take on opportunities when they show up. You know, if we're, if we're well-prepared, we can jump into a lot of things. And um, you know, that combination of preparation as well as uh, creativity and adaptability you know, is really what I found. That's probably the way I would describe the strategy I take towards um, you know, adventures. What about the honesty part of it? So, so you, you said early on, you just wanted to fit in. You wanted to hide it as best you could so that you weren't any different than anybody else. Was there that watershed moment where you said, okay, look, I'm going to come clean. I'm blind. Did, did that happen? Did you, admitting it to yourself, admitting it to other people, how did that work? Yeah, uh, definitely. There was, a, there was a very clear watershed moment. I was working for a large multinational company. We had an offsite sales meeting for a week in Mexico and um, was flying down there by myself to meet up with others from the, from the team and the company and realizing that we were just at this resort and there was no way I was going to find my find my way around, get to where I needed to be all the time. So finally, I broke out a cane that I had started using a couple months before, and I brought that there. And other than you know five or six people in my immediate group that knew that I used to turn my screen 
you know, white on black instead of black on white, or I would do other things and I would never drive. I would always get rides from them. Other than that small group, nobody really knew. And when I showed up, you know, on day one with, oh, maybe 100, 120 people, you know, in a large room and I had my cane, I could tell it was just everybody was like, what, what's that, you know? Did this happen yesterday or something? You know, I mean, they're, they've never yeah. seen anything, right? So they're like, did, did you just go blind? <laughs> the shock from, from the folks was one thing, and I kind of expected that. What I didn't expect changed my perception of um, myself and how I hold myself out there. I had a colleague that came up to me, and her and I have been working together for two or three years. She was in a different department, but we were in the same floor and the same building. And she came up to me at one point during this week and really said, wow, I had no idea. Why didn't you ever say anything? And I'm like, well, I was you know, kind of embarrassed. I really just didn't want to be different because you know, for years I've been walking past you in the hall and I always wave and smile <laughs> and you walk right past me. She goes, I just thought you were the rudest jerk in the office. And that made me realize that what I thought was hiding it for myself was actually probably making her day less happy every day. You know, so me having the confidence to own it in myself could actually help maybe make her day a little happier. And, and who knows who else we interacted with or who else I interacted with that, you know, maybe had a misperception and I had no idea about it. So that 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 was a watershed moment for me. That was like, OK, I can control this. Yeah, I can. I can tell people I can't see, so they just don't think I'm, you know, acting strange in an airport or, you know, being rude to someone because they they smiled and I just walked right past them. But you were functioning incredibly well for somebody who was blind. You were flying on your own, uh, you know. So so you'd adapted, you'd figured out strategies. Where were you living at the time when you went to that event in Mexico? Oh, let's see. I was in New York City. I was in right. New York City then. We're just outside New York City. So just outside New York City. So I'm working in New York, I'm assuming. So then meaning. Yeah, that you had working in New York. Our offices actually had moved. Um, so we were in Westchester County, just just north of okay. the city. And um, like I said, I had a close group of people, you know, that I worked with that knew. So, you know, somebody picked me up sometimes to get to work or I, I, I learned to take public transportation, you know, things like that. So I could get around. I memorized my career in the office really well. Um, I could do my job well. Uh, my immediate group knew I, I wasn't very good at reading like Excel sheets or things like that. So they would often just tell me what was going on. You know, so they had some concept of it, but the broader company had no idea. Was that a worry when you interviewed for the company? I mean, that seems like something you might want to disclose. When you're when you're doing the interviewing process, you know, um, I have different opinions about this now than I did back then. Okay. Back then, I looked at it as a twenty-something that, well, I can do the job. So you know, just just hire me for me. You know, I interview well and and do these type of things. And there were other people I worked with that didn't drive for different reasons. So I didn't really look at it that way. And again, probably from a very selfish perspective at the time, but um, I was able to fake eye contact really well. Um, the condition I have where I have no central vision, but I remained um, at that point, at least a fair amount of peripheral vision. Okay. So even though I couldn't read something right in front of me, I could detect motion and tell when the person was standing next to me or somebody was in front of me, that type of thing. 
I, I couldn't tell whether they were smiling or frowning. And, you know, eventually I couldn't even tell that there was a person right in front of me. But at that point I had some sight, just not anything, not, no acuity and no, no central vision. So I was able to fake it really well. That is one of the interesting things of life in general, I think, in that how well people can fake things that that you and so you don't even know what yeah. what was your what was your job what what were were you doing oh so originally i was working in technical service um you know for for a pretty large company so my job was really interacting between research and development and some of the scientists and engineers in the company and the customer and the sales team to figure out what their problems were and um if we had solutions or if they were using products we made, you know, how they could be used better. So again, uh, in hindsight, I kind of fell into a role that was perfect at the time, you know, because it was all about problem solving, you know, and I, I was in a lab, but I wasn't doing much lab work. It wasn't like I was doing a whole lot of the actual, um, you know, on the bench lab work. I was the interpreter. I was the one that, that took it to the customer and through our sales team or through our marketing team and then back. So a, a really fascinating role that I think was intentional in interviewing for it. I remember the stress of looking at roles. So when I didn't necessarily tell um, the companies I was interviewing with that I had low vision or at that point that we consider low vision, um, I did take some effort to make sure that the jobs I was going into, they understood what that what was required and the responsibilities well, so I could do the job well. Right. And you rationalize it to yourself that it was low vision. So I have low vision. People have to wear glasses. It's it's not all that much different in some ways. Mm -hmm. Is exactly. that what I'm <laughs> Yep, exactly. And then how did you end up going from this kind of a role, which, I mean, it sounds like this role is really... Yeah, you're the liaison, but then you're also it's it's such a premium on communication. So as you said before, this is this is good listening, which is probably one of the things that is a big challenge for all of us is actually listening. Stop talking, start listening. So you had that part going and then being able to interpret what was going on and translate that to whichever group needed to understand it. Did that lead you? to eventually having your having your own company i mean how did the how did the vanilla thing come out of it cuz i have <laughs> i have a i have a soft spot for vanilla it was always my favorite smell it. in making chocolate chip cookies right i mean i, I don't think i love the smell of vanilla so so i'm intoxicated right. by the smell of vanilla so uh so how did that happen did you go from there to to vanilla? Uh, yeah, yeah, through a pathway, um, you know, within within the same company. You know, I I would just jump back for one second. Yep. When you can't see, it's remarkable how much we rely on, or or anyone would rely on their other senses to tell them what's going on around them. So when we can't see, it's amazing how much we hear, and smell, and feel. I I, I use the analogy often about like camping in the woods. You know, when you're out, pitch your tent, beautiful day everything's you know nice and sunny outside and you're hanging out all's good at two o'clock in the morning when it's pitch black you hear every stream you hear every stick crack you hear every you know wind blowing a branch against the tree you know all, all those sounds are there during the day but we usually don't pay any attention to them it's not that we can't hear them they're all there and we, we can hear the same but we just don't pay attention to them 
then when we can't see, all of a sudden, everything we hear becomes much more uh, kind of front of mind. And um, that's the way I would work with a lot of things. It's not that um, I can hear any better. I, I just pay more attention to it. So I, in other words, I listen better. But then there's also the part, like continuing with your analogy of being, of camping and being mm-hmm. out in the dark at two o'clock at night, that the the worry can be sometimes you're hearing something and you're like, oh no, that's definitely a bear. There's a bear that's coming <laughs> for me. You know, I think I think that might be a mountain lion. I mean, the 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 imagination in the dark can be can be your worst enemy. How do you regulate that part of it to to be able to s- hear things correctly? Yeah, it's a challenge. It's a challenge for everyone who's blind. Um, you know, being a runner, taking out adventures, being on the trail. When I step off a rock, there's no perception whether this is a a four inch drop or a three foot drop. You know, all of a sudden there's just nothing there under your foot. Um, And that is something it takes a lot of time to adjust to. It's also one of the key things I found is that building relationships with other people we trust can really help and it can help everybody along. And I think I think all humans are, you know, relationship communal creatures. And forcing myself to be open to that and to really relying on a guide and then working well together is one of the ways that um, have adapted to that. But it is a challenge. Um, you know, we we you know, I had a business partner, he and I, in our vanilla company. I mean, we started a company in Madagascar. We've had joint ventures in Uganda. And not seeing, being in rural Madagascar, where I don't speak French well, and I definitely don't speak Malagasy well. And then also being in places where there really just isn't public services at all. It's literally like one of the most vulnerable feelings on earth. And experiencing that really helps hone this sense of um, relying on our senses to know where we are and to and to stay safe and and mostly to be comfortable. Right. And the comfortable part, I would imagine, is overriding the imagination sometimes to to actually be comfortable and think, I'm okay. I know I'm in a good place. I'm okay. I've done everything like you were talking about the idea of preparation. You do your preparation so that you know where you are so that you can you can answer a lot of the questions without having to ad- answer all the questions in the immediate moment. The big reality is it comes back to faith. You know, faith, faith. that things are going to be okay. You know, and we we work as hard as we can to make sure that you know we're moving in the right direction, we're staying safe, we're doing these things. But at the end of the day, I, I feel it's it's just a a bit more you know pushed to the edge of reality of the fact that almost all of us have very little control into what's going to happen in our lives a minute from now. I just tend to spend a lot more time thinking about that. You were saying it as if we're all sharing the this sort of exact same thing, but don't you, do you feel that you are a little bit closer to that margin where, where you're, you're a little bit more vulnerable 
that something something can happen. But definitely, you know, I, I, I definitely at closer to that margin is it. And that's where honing the perception of other senses is really important. And then realizing, I, I think a lot of us are, are tend to be in life closer to the margin than we ever realized or ever realize as we go through day to day. And one of the things that really helps in being close to that margin is having good human connections, having good friends, you know, finding our people, you know, being together and being comfortable with them. And it's one of the things because of being blind and having to rely on others more in order to do a lot of the things I like to do, it's made me realize how important that relationship is. And now having children that are growing up and you know, experiencing life through them as they've moved on through their into and through their teenage years and then moved out. Um, both of them just happened to, uh, one graduated uh, high school and one graduated college this year. So both are now out on their own. We see how that worry is in a very different place now. And then now thinking about them and their lives and what they're doing and realizing how much really happens that's unpredictable and that's really out of our control. I just happen to be closer to that margin and rely a lot on human relationships and, and people, you know, just being around the right people. I want to get to the human relationships, but it's really interesting what you're talking about, the idea of adapting, which I think we as human beings have an amazing ability to adapt, but we don't necessarily utilize it until we're forced to. But you've taken a step where in some ways you were you were forced to adapt, where you're talking about playing football and running track and trying to adapt in some of these areas. And then you've gone with some of the endurance running that you've done, some of the, the triathlons, you've forced yourself to, you've forced yourself into an uncomfortable position in which you have to adapt. I'm assuming that that is a conscious decision on your part that once you have a taste of this adaptation, you want to put yourself in a position where you have to continue to adapt. Is that true? Oh, 100%. You know, I believe growth comes from being uncomfortable. You know, we put ourselves in these situations that are, you know, whether they're physically, emotionally, mentally, you know, uncomfortable, that we're, we're pushing ourselves, you know, that that's where we learn about ourselves. That's where the growth comes from. You know, that's where we really find out, you know, what's in there. How do you share that mentality with other people? Because you're in a position where you are a mentor, where you're helping other people to push their boundaries. How do you share that desire, the comfort of being uncomfortable, you know, of pushing yourself to an uncomfortable situation because it is a good thing? to do where most people, you know, a lot of people would think, why are you making me go to an uncomfortable position? It's, why, why, why do I have to choose to be uncomfortable? I can choose to be comfortable. How are you, how are you communicating that to people? Yeah, it's, it's difficult as I, as I know, you know, it's a, <laughs> it's, it's always an interesting conversation when people ask, well, well, why, well, why are you doing this? And it's, you know, it's, we, we can demonstrate it, we, we can show it, 
um, you know, we can talk about it. But at the end of the day, the people we're with or the people that, you know, we encounter, I mean, they really have to make that decision on their own along the way. But, um, you know, I, I encourage people to, you know, push their limits to, to do something that's uncomfortable. And then, um, and then I've learned a lot about the process of doing that that brings a lot of joy and happiness that was different than the way I originally approached it. And um, I've come to understand this a lot more these days now about um, celebrating the discomfort, as my friend Charles says, you know, to embrace the suck, you know, it's, uh, that's where the joy comes from, you know, finishing the marathon or, or climbing the mountain or things like that. Th those are great events. But if all of our of all of our joy, all of our self-satisfaction, all of our enjoyment, you know, comes out of achieving that one event at that one day or one couple of days. Um, it can be pretty short-lived. But when we when we actually get out there and enjoy the hard run on a on a cold day or enjoy, you know, something that's really tough and we come back satisfied with having done it, whether it's the, you know, a routine workout, but we're just satisfied with the way it went. That's where I find a lot of the enjoyment. So actually, you know, the discomfort is what brings the joy in some sort of strange, perverse circle that is really tough to explain to other people sometimes. How, how did you convince yourself of that reward of, of enjoying the suck, of enjoying the hard day, you know, the, the cold running in the cold or whatever it is? How did you can because because there has to be that reward right that reward that says you need to come back to do this is it is it i did something that i didn't want to do and i'm much happier as a result of having done that i mean this can go to like taking a cold shower or something as well right? <laughs> oh yeah doing your homework you know, I talk to my kids about this all the time. Like, I know you don't like pre-calculus, but believe me, it's not about the test. It's about understanding the work as you do it. And uh, they, they don't buy it, but uh, I still try. <laughs> um, yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. I think it's something that adapts with time. I think there's something to our own sense of ourselves and our identity. At one point, I remember making this, and I had a, I had a great um, person I was working with who really, you know, told me about this. They said, well, if you keep training like this, because I started endurance sports um, in my late thirties. So I, I was not young when I started these things. I, I, I joke that before my first marathon, I took a, I took a 28 year taper. And uh, that was a, that was true. You know? Um, and, and you're working when, at a high powered job while you were doing this as well. Right. Yeah. And that's how these things fold together. That's how these things really, really fold together. So I, I found that, you know, it's not as if we're marathon training and have a stressful job and working hard and, um, and the two are exclusive from each other. By starting to weave in my training with work and travel, it allowed me a place to, um, you know, kind of decompress in a different way. So I could transfer the stress from maybe some of the stuff that was maybe actually more harmful, the mental um, the pressure, the you know, work-related stress could transition that into something where I could kind of blow it off because I went out for a, a, you know, a good six mile run over lunch, or I had a good pace workout after work, you know, the, the two went hand in hand. 
And interestingly, as I started to adapt and have the self-identity more as an athlete, um, that's when the workouts really started to become more enjoyable and to the point where I, I used to just tell, I still tell everybody now that I only race anything in order to train because I do like having a plan and without a goal, oftentimes my plan, you know, it isn't very firm. And I, I find I, you know, not, I don't enjoy it as much unless I have something pretty definitive and hard out there on the horizon. So I want to make sure that I heard you correctly there. You set a race so that you can train. That's what you're saying? Yes. That the race puts it out there and the part that you really enjoy is the training part, is the slog, is the getting incrementally better. That's that's what you, so, so that in, in some ways really is the reward. The race, you're like, okay, the race is out there to make me work, to make me lead up to it, but I get to do the other stuff. Is that, am I getting it correctly? Yes, that, that's the way it goes. You know, I've trained for, you know, specific races, a Boston Marathon race, and, and you show up and it's raining cats and dogs or it's 84 degrees, you know, and th there's nothing we can do about that. But that doesn't mean I'm less satisfied about being there. It's, and maybe this is part of coming at it from a sense of disability. And I look at what I get enjoyment is, is developing capability. So that's what I, I look at a lot of the athletic part that I took on. It, it helped my mindset in, in all aspects of my life, shifting it from a sense of increasing disability, not able to drive, not able to see as much, uh, uncomfortable in a meeting, you know, and that, that ever-growing sense of being disabled. And then when I started running, I said, well, you know, I can, I can do some physical changes. I can, I can get, you know, in shape. I can take on these endurance challenges. That created this sense of ability that um, was lacking for years or maybe a decade or more. And you can also enjoy things that most other people don't enjoy. So in asking that, I mean, you're, you're doing a lot of difficult things. Do you have do you have that one thing that you say, this is it, this is where I draw the line? As I was thinking of this question, I was I was thinking of sort of Indiana Jones with his snakes, right? I mean, he was <laughs> he's slugging through, getting through everything, right? But it's snakes that were the problem, right? Do you have your snakes? <laughs> oh, I definitely do. And and, and yeah, and, and I want to be true that I don't, I don't feel positive every day. I mean, this is hard. You know, there's some days where I wake up and I just think this sucks. You know, I wish I could just get out for a run on my own. I, I don't have somebody to run with today. I didn't line up a guide. I, I feel like changing my workout. I don't have a way to do it. Um, so it's it's not easy. There is a level of acceptance and tolerance that also comes with the adaptability. So layering on the next level is this level of acceptance. So Yes, part of it. I definitely have my my snakes and my things that I could do, but I've decided that you know I I just really don't want to do that. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. I've made some changes. I've tried some other things, and I've I found some different sports or different activities. And definitely in the working in world, you know, I, I I identify that a lot in the career side. You know, there's things I could do. And then I really have to ask myself, well, why am I doing this? Do I really 
enjoy doing this? Am I helping others by doing this? Or is this just something that I'm looking to prove to someone else that I can do it? And when it's the later, um, in the, the, the older I've gotten, I've realized that that last one, doing things just to prove to other people that I can do it is um, not as rewarding. So I try to I try to limit those activities. That's like the most egotistical run you can you can take, right? Just to prove that you can do it so that other people know that you can do it as opposed to being efficient and helpful. You know, there's this balance between doing it you know, for ourselves and for other people and doing it um, because of other people. And and that's takes some time to really understand or took me some time to really understand that. And um, I think that was a healthy transition for me. It, it's interesting. Yeah, I think you're I think you're totally right on that. And the guide part of it, how much does that help? Because the guiding thing is interesting, right? Because as as a blind runner, you need a guide to help you. And I was reading about some of your guides who are saying that, you know, trying to be as specific as possible about what's there. You know, it's a six inch rock. This is the size of a fist. This is, you know, whatever it's gravel. It's this, all of which sounds great while I'm reading it. Right. But when you get out there and you've been working really hard, your brain doesn't work all that well. <laughs> so the responsibility exactly. of the guide is, is a lot, right? It, it totally. When you're 28 hours into something on the trail and it, it, it's hard. Um, you know, the, the guys I'm with are friends. I mean, we they they give so much to do this together. It it's hard on them. It it really is. It's mentally challenging. Um, whenever I take on anything that's that's dangerous or really difficult, we usually have at least two, usually three guides. And the point being that one's usually the point guide. A second is typically a safety person if it's that type of situation, uh, which would be behind me. And the third one is basically um, mentally off and joining us. And then we rotate. And it depends on the stress level of the situation, how often we'll rotate. Uh, we're running a marathon on the road. Um, you know, yeah, one guy can go the whole way through and there's not much there. When we're, you know, on the north rim of the Grand Canyon with a 1500 foot drop off, you know, six inches to our right. You know, the, the stress on the guides is incredible. Yeah. Because yeah. I don't know the drop offs there, but they do. So that's where the things are. I'm like, la, 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 it's all good. Yeah. yeah. They're, they're you know, like those stay left just stay left <laughs> stay left stay alive which that that is a lot of stress when you're trying to keep someone else alive and keep them safe as well because if they make a mistake then you run into something that you had no idea that it was there yeah. and then and then you're hurt and then you have to kind of shake it off or do whatever hopefully it's not all that bad but but that's the responsibility that the guide has that they have to be not only your eyes, but responsible for your safety. And, and it's interesting yeah. to talk about some of the races because we've seen it in like Paralympic competition where you'll see a 5K and you'll see someone who has more than one guide where the guy, there will be one guide at one point when yeah, these are fast runners and, and the yeah. guide will drop out and another guide will jump in to be able, and I've seen that in marathons as well, where you're exchanging guides and it's sort of that, that tag. And then the next guide is on 
to ensure that they can maintain the pace that you that you need. How do you, you said it's it's friends who have who have come about as the guides. It is how does that conversation work? Are they coming to you saying, hey Dan, I'd like to be a guide for you. I think I can do this. Or are you saying, hey, I've heard you're a really good runner. Do you want to come do the North Rim of the Grand Canyon? <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's a little of both. And it is a delicate but important conversation. And when I say friends, um, a lot of people I do different adventures with, they, they came to me as a guide and we've become friends. So it's a little of both where I have had friends that are amazing athletes and we took we take on things together and others that came in as guides and we've just become very good friends over time. But it, it's hard. And I'll tell you, the, the other thing with guiding is it took me quite a bit of time, but to understand that, you know, I'm, I'm not trying to run this trail as a sighted person. I'm trying to climb this mountain or run this trail as a blind person. So I want to be the best me I can be out there. I don't have to try to strive for something that I'm just not going to have, you know, and that took some time to really absorb and allow me to just be comfortable with being who I am out there. And sometimes that's a little difficult to explain is the fact that, um, you know, I, I'm not trying to be a sighted athlete or a sighted business person, you know, I'm trying to be me being an athlete or being an investor or being a business person, even though that's different than the way most people who are sighted are going to do it. It's the realization that we all have to come to at some point, right? I think that we have an idea of who we are an idea of who maybe we think we should be, or maybe we think other people think we should be. And then and then coming back to center and saying, this is who I am, this performance is for me. And then, but you have one other element in that too, don't you? With the guide, they're trying to give you the best experience that you can. And so are they trying to push you? Are they trying to, is it finding that harmony for them as well? Or, you know, that, that's a challenge because you've got a couple of different people on the team. Yeah, definitely. I mean, that, that, that's what it is. And we have to talk about this a lot because, I mean, sometimes it's about achieving something uh, from a distance standpoint. Time really doesn't matter. Other times it's, it's a pace requirement. And I mean, Sometimes these these uh, my teammates are both guides, but they're also um, maybe like in a race, maybe they're a pacer too. Um, because one of the things that's important for a guide is they should be um, definitely above where I am from a physical fitness and ability standpoint, and not on the visual side. But you know, if I want to run up you know, a 345 or, or 330 marathon, a good guide should be a, a 315 or three hour marathoner. You know, pushing a guide to their limit at the same pace that I'm trying to go to um, can be really frustrating for everybody. And 
And so there's a lot of work that goes into that, just making sure everybody's comfortable and that this is what we're going to do. And then realizing that, you know, sometimes a guide has a bad day too. And, and that's okay. And maybe that's one of the things that's come around where, you know, I trained the race or I raced the train instead of trained the race because there's an extra variable in any race or in any activity that's um, really outside of my control. And one of the things we did to race across America a couple of years ago, we put together a, a four bike tandem team. And a tandem is an extreme example of that, is that um, when you're both on the bike together, you know, if you're in perfect sync, you can create a lot of power and go really fast. If, if one or the other is off in just a little way, every time one person has pressure on the pedal and the other one doesn't, it, it's just wasted energy that goes into the other person's legs and not into the, not into the, the wheels on the road. And um, that's probably the case where I can see it more than anything with this ability to work really well together. And that these races and events are, are truly a team event. Um, it's not about me doing something as fast as I can or as far as I can, but it's about me doing something together with a team and the team being able to get there as fast as we can. It's interesting because you mentioned the team and, and obviously for you, you've done so many different things and been successful in different things, being successful within the business world, being successful within the adventure world. How much of what you've learned there, because the, the team aspect and the, the idea of harmony is something that you're trying to achieve within the business as well, right? So that so you don't feel like you're stretching every single moment and and maybe not working well with the uh, with the rest of the group and so you're not you're not benefiting from all of this. How does that work the the knowledge that you've gained, this idea of, of adaptation, this idea of being uh, enjoying the discomfort. How much of that, can you communicate in the mentor side of things, in working with kids and working with, with people coming up? Yeah, it's, I think it's very important within Team C Possibilities, for instance, we run a scholarship program for 20 plus or minus um, students who are blind. And we, we talk a lot with them. I spend a lot of time with them. I bring in mentors to talk with them. And a lot of this, they're, they're figuring out their careers. You know, they're oftentimes the only blind student in many of their classes. And there's a, sometimes there's, they may, they're, they're outstanding students, outstanding people, but they're going into fields that maybe there's not really a precedent for how this is going to be done. And explaining, you know, the same thing of of being adaptable but also being tenacious you know of um having focus but still moving forward is really important and one of the biggest things we do with the students is we we create this mentorship program where we bring in successful people that have had similar lived experiences and then we also really try to create a peer-to-peer -peer group through social activities and, and different things are all over the country and coming from all over the world. But this idea of um, having peers 
that are in the same situation to collectively um, discuss challenges as they come up, I think is a, is a really good way to do that because they're solving problems uh, in a different way than I did 20 or 30 years ago. And I think that is really important to be able to have that community to of kind of best practices and ideas to share that with other people and be able to get feedback from them. Because really what I, what I mentor in and what I say is really it's about staying focused. It's about, um, you know, and, and you might not be focused on what you want. You may not know what career you're going for, but having a goal, having a focus about like, I, I want to you know, have a certain GPA or I want to experience three different um, or discover three different avenues that I could pursue, whatever that is. And then um, I love the cycling analogy with this, uh, that uh, one of my, my friends, Chris, always says, hey, well, I just want to get to just, just keep pressure on the pedals. <laughs> you know, you're not going hard all the time and occasionally you're going to coast, but really when you want to get through the race, you just keep pressure on the pedals. I think that sounds like a great idea. It sounds, the, the beauty of those kinds of things are that they sound so simple but make such a profound effect, right? Yes. Just keep, keep pressure on the pedals. How much do you, as the person who in a lot of ways is the mentor, how much do you end up learning from the process of being a mentor? I, I, I learn all the time. You know, I'm, I'm learning from the students. I'm, I mean, one of my things that I, I'm just, I think maybe also naturally curious. So... I, I really love learning and I realize the more I learn, the more I realize how little I really know. Um, I may know of things that I've experienced or done, but that doesn't mean that they're the right thing or that the only way to do it or even the right way to do it. So just, just constantly seeing this stuff. When we surround ourselves with highly ambitious people, you know, we just learn things. Um, they, they found ways, or some of our different students have found ways to do stuff that I'm asking them as many questions as they're asking me, um, whether it's technology-based, whether it's um, interaction-based, whether it's, um, you know, mobility or, or communication. There's so many fascinating things that, that come both ways. So mentorship is not a one-way street. It, it's definitely a two-way street. Are, are there the tenants that you look at? I mean, it sounds like you've talked about some of them, the idea of, of enjoying the discomfort of, of surrounding yourself with, with these, you know, tenacious, motivated people. Is that, I mean, can, can you distill it down to, you know, sort of a pursuit? Can you distill that pursuit down to a few basic tenants that you say, yeah, these are the things that you want to do. These are the things that I want to do. And I need to remember that I want to do those things sometimes too. Yeah, definitely. I, I think, I think, you know, number one is don't take myself too seriously. You know, realize that, you know, the vast majority of the things I think I know, and I think I know how to do, I, I, I probably don't. And uh, <laughs> not taking myself too seriously is, is really number one. And then on top of that, it really gets down to the people that we surround ourselves with, the, the human connections we have in life. You know, find the people that, that we want to be with, that want the best for us and that we want the best for them too, and surround ourselves with them, you know, just to be in that circle of people. You know, that, that's 
really the, the, the basic part. And then finding out what we really enjoy, you know, just trying a lot of different things and finding out what we like. Um, I like creation. I like things that are new, um, discovering. And I really like um, mentoring and supporting um, young students or entrepreneurs. You know, most of my work is on um, investing in technology and other startups in Africa and Southeast Asia and really being the connector, you know, helping, helping them develop networks, um, you know, whether that's in their industries or, um, you know, solving the problems that they're looking to solve and um, really being involved you know, and, and trying to create the space for them to thrive and, and see what they could do. Cause they're, they're tackling huge challenges and huge problems. And, you know, if I can be a little part of helping them, you know, achieve some of these, some of these goals that they have, it's really, really impactful. So I, I, I really like this getting involved and it really just comes down to, you know, the, the, the people we're with and um, how we interact with them. Exactly. What about, what about the next? I mean, we've talked about we, we've talked about the Grand Canyon. We've talked about Kilimanjaro a little bit. We've talked about uh, Machu Picchu. Uh, what, what's what's next? Is there? I mean, these are huge things. Is it always something huge? Is it? Is there some? Or is there something huge? Well, the huge ones are what get the attention. Yep. You know, um, but they're not always the things that are you know the most enjoyable as well too. I mean, there's plenty of joy out there in the world that don't have to be so huge. For Team C possibilities, we are looking at, uh, we got disrupted by COVID a couple of years ago that, that knocked us off track. But I think we're getting back onto that. We're looking at putting together an adventure on Europe, um, possibly something in Scotland um, in mid 23. And then the last continent we have to hit is Antarctica. So we're working on something there. Um, not quite sure what that is yet, but um, something preferably self-supported and um, and hard, which doesn't sound like it's that hard to find down there. No, I think the hard part, that should be easy to find. <laughs> you, you're saying that we are looking into it. Who Who is the we that's looking into that? Oh, it's my endurance partners on Team C Possibilities. Okay. That's the nonprofit we founded ooh, in 2015 or so. And we really take on these epic endurance challenges around the world and spend a lot of time speaking with students in school, speaking with parents and um, interacting with kids who are blind and the people that interact with the kids who are blind, you know, really all around the world. And we do it in combination with these, you know, just really tough endurance challenges. That sounds that sounds awesome. And Antarctica sounds like, I mean, it's one of those places that most people don't make it to Antarctica. So the the story, <laughs> the story is already uh, no. huge to start off with. We we're trying to talk to some, uh, you know, some of the, the cruise operators about getting down there. We're like, well, can, can we go down and can we leave the boat for five days and come back? And you know, their answer so far has been flatly no. <laughs> but 
there are there are expedition folks there are, there are mountain climbing expedition folks there are um you know cross-country skiing expeditions and stuff like that so we're working some stuff out there where we might be able to put something together um with their support but yeah you know map of course and um, the logistics are just incredible down there but that's part of the challenge is it's not just the physical aspect it's 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 the whole putting together the team the logistics the training that the everything that's just such a such a awesome challenge well, i remember you earlier in this talk saying something about that you enjoy the problem solving so you found a place that gives you some problems to solve it sounds like <laughs> yeah yeah i would say the whole team is like that you know we we kind of jones for problems to solve without creating them so that that allows us to put ourselves in really hard positions and then you know have you know that this both patience, adapt, patience and adaptability combined with a, with a real desire to solve the problem. That might, that, that is, I think we're, we're approaching the end and that sounds like the coolest thing to, to end on this idea of, of jonesing for problems without creating them. Problems yeah, to solve. There's enough out there to solve. We don't need to create them. We just need to work on solving them. Oh, well, this sounds like like a ton of fun and so cool that you're bringing so many people along with you, that you and your team are bringing so many people along with you for the experience of, of yeah, of finding that discomfort, of finding your way through that discomfort, of keeping your keeping the pressure on the pedal and and yeah, solving problems and going, yeah, solving problems is a good thing. Yes, it is. It is, as you know. You know, there's uh, there's a lot of um, fulfillment out there after taking on something hard that that we don't know if we can do. You know, that is one of the keys. Is you know, one of the things that it, you know, we're, it's not certain. We don't know if we're going to finish. You know, and that's where the thrill comes in. You know, it's in the process of of getting across the line. Yeah, and it's not a matter of avoiding the problems. It's a matter of solving the problems, which to me is the greatest message that I'm taking from this. So thank you very much, Dan. I appreciate it. Oh, thank you for having me. I love what you do. This is this is fantastic. I'm really glad you're doing it. Thank you. It's been a lot of fun. And as we said before we got on, we'll have to meet in person sometime soon. We've been mutual fans, I believe. And so, yes. so it'd be nice to actually meet in person sometime. <laughs> It'll happen soon. We'll we'll make it. That's one of those problems we have to solve. I think, well, it sounds like you're pretty good at that one. So, so I'm sure it's going <laughs> to happen. I think you are too. <laughs> thank you. All right, Dan. Thanks so much. I really appreciate it. And thank you to all of you for tuning in. We hope you had a great time. The greatest gift you can give us is to tell your friends. Tell your friends to tune in. This will eventually be a podcast. We'd love for you to follow us. We'd love for you to like us. And it will allow us to continue to bring you great content. So thank you very much. And we'll see you next time. <laughs>